God deeply desires union with you. God invites you to this connection with him um, because of what he accomplishes through you, because of what Christ does for you, because of how Christ restores your value and your honor and your worth as a human being. Um, and that is incredibly good news. Welcome to the show where we talk about topics in modern Christianity that are so challenging, they require us to be grounded in something much bigger than ourselves. If you're here, you have likely found yourself hungry for something deeper. You want to find answers for how to hold on to your faith after seeing religion be twisted in a way that has somehow become bad news instead of good. I'm here for all of that too. I'm here for the spiritual wrestle, and I'm here to learn more ways that people are finding hope in a God that interrupts our norms and expectations. You might be asking, can business really have a kingdom effect? Why combine business and missions? You're wondering is valid. Statistically, businesses had a very harmful effect on vulnerable communities. More than one third of all global profits are made in forced labor exploitation, including nearly $8 billion generated in domestic work by employers who use threats and coercion and pay little or no wages. Business can and has been used for so much evil, but it also has the power to be used for so much good. It's through good business that financial burdens are lifted safe working conditions are established, and authentic relationships are formed. That is why we are on mission at Kindred Exchange to empower entrepreneurs around the world and to equip our community with the resources they need to begin to shift the way they approach mission work. Join us as we pave the way for a better form of impact, one that is rooted in humble partnerships and Kindred Exchanges. To learn more or become a monthly donor today, go to kindredexchange.co slash donate. We are back today with my good friend, Aaron Wheeler. Uh, if you missed the last episode, please go back and hear his incredible accolades and uh, the work that he's done as a PhD um, in missiology and, well, in international. I do this every time, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> intercultural studies. Intercultural, intercultural studies. Yeah. But really, I mean, he could talk circles around me when it comes to the contextualization of the gospel and how how we frame the book that we can read in so many different languages and so many different cultures, the story that has touched lives for generations and generations. Um, it's fascinating to talk with him about how, how that reaches through to literally every person uh, on this planet and has, you know, from the beginning of time. So Aaron is back today to kind of round out the conversation that we started in the last episode about the four different pathways, the four gospel pathways that people, uh, that people really have frameworks for in the way that they conceptualize who God is to them. So Aaron, welcome back. Yeah, Thanks thank for you. being here to, to even go deeper into, into this conversation. And here's just another plug. Please go back and listen to the last episode. Um, if this is the first time you're meeting Aaron, um, because I think it'll be the, the, the best foundation um, for the conversation we're having today. All right. So Aaron, we are moving ahead in, in this conversation of the four gospel pathways. And why don't you just give us a quick recap of the last, the last two, sure. and then where we're, where we're going today. 
Yeah, so the basic premise behind this is that um, in our efforts to evangelize, which is a good thing, we, we want that, we want people to know Jesus, um, that we have kind of Americanized it, that in the American values of efficiency, where you know capitalism in America is built on products that are better, cheaper, and faster than your competition, that what we've done to the gospel is that we basically reduced it to an elevator pitch of like, you know, how can I as quickly and efficiently give you a gospel presentation or an understanding of the gospel that has reduced it to something that has a lot of unintended bad consequences. Um, how we understand the gospel is the foundation of how we understand God. And so even in the, in, you know, the last couple of weeks before we, since we've recorded our first version of this, I came across on, I came across on Instagram, which, you know, I don't have an Instagram account. So my wife came across this, uh, where it was a gospel presentation. It was an elevator pitch of the gospel. And it was kind of, you know, bouncing from one idea to the next. And the first idea, the like foundation of this whole gospel was, and I'll read it right here. It's God is holy and needs to punish sin. That's, that's the foundation. That's, Yay! I, I want to hear more. Right. But it's like, if that's, if, if we're in, in our desire to be efficient in the gospel, um, if that's where we're starting from, is this idea is God is holy and needs to punish sin. It's like, that is how we see God. And that's then how we see ourselves. And that's how we see life and meaning and purpose and calling and everything else is rooted in that. Um, and that's going to have some consequences, consequences that we don't want, that we don't intend. It's not from bad motivations. It's just these things echo. And so my whole point is the gospel is way bigger than we think. That scripture gives us, you know, a, this biblical foundation of the gospel is way bigger than we allow it to be because of those other values we're fighting, of this desire to get people to know and to get people to hear and to get people to respond. Good, good motivations, but um, to do so, so efficiently and so quickly, um, you know, this capitalistic evangelistic style um, creates a lot of difficult things. And so what I'm presenting are these four gospel paths that are rooted in global theology of um, brothers and sisters around the world coming to scripture and saying, what is the core of the gospel? What is sin, repentance, and salvation? How do we understand those three things? And seeing that the Bible presents four different concepts and four different ideas. So we looked at the first two last week, which is the, the legal gospel, the, the bad news is guilt, the good news is innocence. Again, totally biblical foundation, um, you know, very much a, a salvation concept, uh, but not the only one. And then we looked at the, uh, the, the purity gospel, the bad news is that I'm dirty, the good news is I'm clean. Um, of the way that these these purity concepts are, are deeply developed throughout scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole thing. And so today we want to move on to the second two, the second half of these. Um, the third one, uh, I kind of saved to the third one because it's the weirdest one. Like if I started with this, you probably wouldn't want to hear the rest because this is kind of the least compatible with American culture and perspectives. Uh, so I call it the spiritual gospel because it's based in spiritual realities. It's based in a worldview that there is another world beneath the material one, that there are spiritual powers of light and darkness, of good and evil, of angels and demons and uh, God versus Satan and this entire spiritual reality um, that exists. And so um, in the West, we struggle with that. Um, I find that we tend to go to extremes. It's either it's everything or it's nothing. Uh, we don't kind of have this healthy middle very often. Um, and so this is a biblical worldview. This is, you know, all authors of scripture believed in these things. Uh, we kind of tend to minimize them in our post-enlightenment society. 
um, that is highly materialistic, not materialistic in that we like to buy things, but materialistic and we can, what is only real is what we can experience. Um, and so um, this kind of goes against that. And so it's gonna sound the funniest and sound the weird and sound the most out there. Uh, but again, sin response and salvation, sin repentance and salvation, the core of every gospel presentation, that sin in this is the, the acts that spiritually weaken us. So if we have these spiritual forces of light and darkness, if we have good and evil, if they're always going to be in competition with one another. And so the goal is, is victory. The goal is to win. Um, and the fear is to, to be defeated. And so sin are the things that weaken us. Sin are the things that either uh, cost us our own spiritual strength or cost us to be on the wrong side of this competition. And so that is the head knowledge that sin has weakened us. And the response is a, is a feeling of fear. It's what you would feel if you knew that your enemy was bigger and stronger than you or to know that you can no longer defeat the enemy that you used to be able to uh your response is to be afraid and then salvation comes through if if, if sin is weakness then salvation is going to be strength and that strength is either a spiritual force inside of you that is able to defeat your enemies or an alliance with a spiritual power that is going to result in victory and again i know how weird this sounds um to think of like you know that we're in a spiritual battle in which we have become weak. And so now we need to become strong through Christ. That's not how we talk about things. That's not how we understand things. And so kind of how I contextualize this to Americans is to say like, yeah, this may sound weird and funny and, and unrelatable to you, but I would say most Americans I know do know what it's like to feel defeated. You do know what it's like to feel hopeless, to feel like no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to win at something whether that's you know, your career, whether that's your mental health, whether that's your you know, losing another 25 pounds, you know, whatever it is, I'm trying to accomplish something and I, I'm just defeated. I can't do it. Um, it's not going, it's not, I, I can't get the victory that I want. And so this is the gospel that speaks to that, that says that um, God is a spiritual being and a spiritual force and a spiritual power. And he has been that way from the beginning. Like, you know, we get into biblical basis for this thing. The Old Testament, when God evangelized in the Old Testament, he didn't present a logical argument. He uh, showed his power. You know, think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that it wasn't Elijah giving this great sermon of logical truth of God. Elijah dealt with Israel's uh, idolatry by having a showdown with Baal and showing who was God and who wasn't. These, these power encounters that we, we have all throughout the Old Testament and in the New, that we just de-emphasize those, um, is God showing his, his strength and power and his ability to defeat anything else around us. Uh, and that is how he presents truth and who he is and how he woos his people is by showing that he's stronger than any other option out there. Actually, really glad that this conversation is happening because I think it's important for us to realize that while that might not be the framework that we are, we are uh, conceptualizing God, that doesn't mean that a, a large block of the global population, you know, is absent from that. I think about yeah. being in Haiti when I was in college, um, and we were we were sitting with a church that existed there, and 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 someone looked up into the corner of the room and she said, "Look." look at that spirit up there. And, you know, the, the natural end for, for me, having never encountered the spiritual world in that way, because uh, for all the reasons that you said was, no, that doesn't exist, you know, or maybe we write off people's, people's connection to the spiritual world, um, with, um, you know, mental illness. So mm. often I see that in, in the church in the United States, um, then I don't know, moving to other countries and, and, 
living life alongside people. I, I'm thinking about when, when we lived in, in Asia as well. I know I referenced that like every episode, but uh, <laughs> one of, one of my dear friends was, was like, Lauren, why do Americans celebrate Halloween? Like, why would you, why would you welcome evil spirits into your home or into your conversation when they're so dangerous? <laughs> and, you know, it just really changed the way that I, I think about so many things because of the deep connection that people have to the spiritual realm. Um, and so leaving that out of this conversation as a pathway to the gospel would be so incomplete because yeah. of how so much of the world does view the spiritual world. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny because you know, science is finally starting to pick up on some of these things, especially when we're in the world of healing, whether we're talking about mental healing or physical healing or, or whatever, that we're realizing that there is a spiritual element to that. We don't call it that. We call it relational sometimes, but recognizing like, you know, you got in a car accident and your body's wrecked and you're on a two-year journey of healing, that this isn't simply about setting bones and this isn't simply about stitching wounds, that there is a whole community that you need. There is a whole support network that you need, that there are deeper realities to how your body biologically reacts that are rooted in stuff that we can't always explain. And that is not as simple as give me the right medicine. Uh, you know, mental health has picked up on this for a long time. That yeah, it's not simply about, um, you know, brain chemistry, as, as important as that is. Brain chemistry reacts in certain ways that can't be explained and that has reactions that don't make sense. And uh, there's bigger stuff to this. And if you're going to treat someone well, it's not simply give them the right medicine. It's uh, give them the right medicine in the midst of a bigger context of spiritual needs um, and making sure through their community and through their networks and through their people that, they're, that those spiritual needs are being met. Yeah, this is really important for anyone, I think, who works alongside communities where modern medicine is is not the, the norm uh, for people to, to attach to because you have to have a way to explain what is going on in your body and, and in the world around you. And if science has not answered that question yet, or you haven't had access to explanations through science, then how else can you explain it except for the spiritual realm? And yeah. so to come in and tell people, well, no, that's that's not right. You just need to understand chromosomes and, and molecules. <laughs> like that's, that, that may not be the best way to present and package yeah. the gospel attached to science. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in, this is so prevalent in psychology in the West of like, we have learned about brain chemistry. We've learned about serotonin and, you know, all these chemicals and how they react, but it still doesn't necessarily fix the problem just because you know, and can, you know, science can explain what's occurring. doesn't mean that it fixes it. doesn't mean that it solves it uh, because it didn't get this way for purely science reasons. And it's not going to get out of this way for purely science reasons. Uh, we've got to have a more holistic way of looking at this. Hmm. And as you know, if, yes, we are in mortal bodies, but if we, if we remove the spiritual component of who we are, then we are removing such a, of such an invitation from God to yeah. sit in a realm that that he created and that he sits in and exists in. And I know that so much of my prayer, so many of my prayers over the last 10 or 15 years, whenever I felt like I was moving into a response to a push or a nudge that I had received from God into a hard, a hard place, or, you know, loving a, a group that, that I disagreed with, whatever it was, you know, I have to, I, just last week I was sitting in a room with people I strongly disagreed with. And I thought, Lord, <laughs> Give me a supernatural portion of grace and mercy. And, and, you know, I, I need, I need the access to that supernatural power. 
Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm so thrilled that, you know, especially the evangelical world, spiritual formation is having a bigger foothold uh, because the rhythms and practices of spiritual formation that Christians have been doing from the beginning uh, are kind of having a new day as we begin to like not be so Catholic paranoid. <laughs> we're, we're adopting some that we, we kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater layer a little bit. Now we have other options and other things we can do and we're finding a greater spiritual power. Um, and finding, you know, one of the great things I've seen in spiritual formation is just this, um, the people who go through it and are discovering it and are growing in it, this sense of peace, the sense of contentment, the sense of, uh, you know, the power of silence and contemplative practices and the spiritual impact that happens on these things that can't be explained if you can't, you know, just walk through and unpack. And that's part of what makes it hard to teach um, is just is, is a big deal. Um, and so... Uh, anyone listening, I would recommend spend some time in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is a deeply, deeply spiritual book. Paul is, and we know that because we know about Ephesus in the book of Acts and, you know, great as Artemis of the Ephesians and the spiritual realities that they were feeling. And so Paul contextualizes the gospel in spiritual terms all throughout that book. Um, that's where I'd recommend to sit for a while in your own devotional times if you're trying to learn and grow in these things. I don't think I mentioned in the last episode that, you know, each of these gospel paths has kind of a home base, a book that really kind of expounds on these ideas more than any others. And so like the legal gospel, it's the book of Romans, you know, Paul's writing to, uh, you know, Rome in the midst of the Pax Romana and this idea that the law is above the emperor, which is which was unprecedented. And so he's writing in legal terms uh, as understanding righteousness achieved through faith. And then for the, uh, the purity gospel the book of hebrews which is deeply rooted in you know the sacrificial system and how the blood of goats and rams cleanse but how much more does christ's blood do the same thing and um so the book of hebrews is that and then for the spiritual gospel yeah the book of ephesians um it's all over there you just have to know how to see it I and mean, it starts out ephesians 1 saying that salvation is that we have been blessed with spiritual blessings through being sealed by the holy spirit like that's his that's some of his first words in explaining what the gospel is all right. So I know we weren't going to hang out there as long in the yeah. spiritual gospel, but I think that that was so, so helpful. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, longer than I expected us to hang out really good stuff. Um, this last gospel pathway is one yeah. that I think is going to be most beneficial, especially for cross-cultural communication, but then even reflecting mm -hmm. back on how our culture is changing in the United States. So talk us, talk us through the last gospel pathway. Yeah, let me set it up a little bit because, um, yeah, I think of all of these four gospel pathways, especially when we I mean, yeah, you said it right, whether we're working domestically or internationally, I think there is a special power in this one because of our context, not because it inherently is more important. You know, we don't we don't have favorite children. There's not a favorite gospel path. But um, as far as impact and opportunity, um, when we look internationally, it's because this is the uh, this is the relational gospel. It's, it's based in concepts of honor, shame, so that the bad news is shame and the good news is honor. Um, that has been the dominant worldview of human experience throughout time. I mean, like 99% of humans who've ever existed have existed in the shame honor dynamic. Um, so it's got that level. But I think even in the, especially in the US, uh, we are in a unique period of our own history where we have historically been a legal society. We've historically been a guilt innocence framework and perspective. But what has happened through technology is shame honor dynamics have come into our society and we are unprepared for them. We don't know how to handle them. We don't have a framework for them. And so they just wreck us in ways that we can't defend ourselves from. Shame and honor dynamics are the undefended enemy in American culture where they have an opportunity to do some good but mostly bad things 
because um, we don't have a framework historically for how to handle them and how to prepare ourselves for them. So it started with, you know, just globalization and television in the 80s and, you know, being able to see a world that you didn't before. And then the internet really exploded these dynamics. And then social media is where the wrecking ball came. Um, social media creates shame and honor dynamics in a way that Americans cannot handle and don't know how to deal with. And so, you know, as we look at these incredible epidemics of mental health and depression and anxiety and the things that they're doing, I think rooted in a lot of this is shame and honor dynamics that Americans aren't equipped for and don't know how to deal with because it historically hasn't been the way our society has been run. Um, and so this gospel speaks directly to that. And um, I think is especially important and powerful there. So again, the core thing is sin, repentance, salvation. How do we understand these? And so sin is um, acts that injure relationship because the relationship, relational context is, is where this lives. And so sin are the things that injure, um, create problems with that break relationship that we have uh, with others and with God. And what the response of this is, is a feeling of shame. Now we have to we have to talk about shame a little bit because we often equate shame with guilt, which is a mistake. Shame and guilt are different things. Guilt is an individual fear of punishment. It's I have done something wrong, and so there are consequences to this wrong thing that I have done, and I'm afraid of what those consequences will be. Shame is a completely different thing. Shame is it starts in the same thing. I've done something wrong, or I've become something wrong, but it takes the wrong thing that we have done and becomes the identity of who we believe we are so in a guilt innocence gospel i have lied but in a shame monster gospel i am a liar the difference between i have lied and i am a liar is the difference between guilt and shame it becomes your identity it becomes who you are and then the result of that is always relational isolation the result of shame is is isolation because guilt and innocence is an individual problem. If you, you know, go commit a crime, your parents are not going to go to jail for your crime because guilt is always an individual problem. But shame is a collective problem. Shame is contagious. You commit a crime and your parents are going to feel real bad because how have I raised a child capable of these things? Even in our not shame on our culture, we understand that. Um, and so the contagious nature of shame and you know we're well equipped to know how to handle contagions now. What we do with contagions is we quarantine, we isolate, we remove from everyone else the contagious thing to prevent the problems of it. And this is what shame has always done. There's kind of two big forms of shame. There's internal shame, which is where like, I have so believed in a broken identity of myself. I am fill in the blank, whatever terrible thing. Because I know this about myself, I don't let others understand this. I try to prevent others from learning this deep thing about me. And so the way that I protect myself from their future rejection is to reject them first. So I keep everybody at arm's length. I never, I, you know, conversations stay shallow. You know, I hang out with my friends and we talk about movies or fashion or sports or whatever, but never anything important. Because if you knew who I really am, and if you understood the things that I'm going through, you wouldn't want me. You would reject me. And so to prevent your future rejection, I first reject you. That's internal shame. External shame is more of the classic understanding of it, where a, a society rejects you, where because of, what, because of what you've done or what you've become or what label we've put on you, we're rejecting and isolating you and putting you in margins. And so whether it's internal shame, I'm rejecting you to prevent pain, or external shame, the group has rejected you, what they both re result in is isolation. 
they both are a relational isolation and that's that's where this gospel of bad news is as i am i am alone i am isolated i am disconnected from deep meaningful relationship because of what sin has done to me friends there is one company whose products and practices I regularly sing angelic praises. Able is committed to the very best models of ethical supply chains and healing-centered employment. From the cotton used in their products to the way they run the boardroom, I feel confident choosing my Able clothes to wear out of my house each day. I've been a loyal customer for a decade. I love their extended sizes, their leather goods. I am actually looking at three bags of theirs on my coat rack right now. And I love their gold jewelry. I even named my last kid after them. Just kidding. It's a different spelling, but I've seen the backside of Able. I've walked through their design studio, their jewelry workshop, their warehouses. I've even co-led a business workshop with Able's founder, Barrett Ward. So when I tell you I love this company, it is at the top of my list for ethical wearable goods. Shop online and use the code UPWARD15 for a discount on anything you like. That's upward one five. Wear it with pride and use your purchasing power to force exploitative businesses to change their company practices for good. I, if I can jump in, cause you've got, yeah. I mean, you are, you're, you're helping me think through literally the filter of every single thing that I write online or every single way, you know, the way that I engage in, in social media practices, because I, it's self-preservation first, you know, like I'm putting my life out on this play for anyone who wants to get to know me first before they meet me face to face or have a conversation with me they're going to scroll my my social media outlets and make a judgment off of what they mm -hmm. see there um so there's that there's there's so an the version of yourself you project is the best possible one <laughs> so many of, so many does. of us and Everybody yeah. of course and no matter how authentic no matter how authentic i try to be there i'm not inviting everybody into yeah. the you know to the hidden parts of my heart and my life. Um, but I am giving them, I am giving them a free and free opportunity to make all their judgments about me from the outside. And we do it. I mean, we, we look at other people's platforms and, and make our minds up about what we think. And then, you know, how you said we are, we are also afraid that we are going to, to, to be judged in a way that is going to remove us from being even allowed to be in a relationship with other people. If we say something wrong or, you know, and, and it takes one statement in today's world of saying the wrong thing oh, for gosh, yeah. you to be completely, completely irrelevant <laughs> to people. Yeah. Um, and, and that is a lot I mean, yeah, of pressure just, to just carry around. It is. It's yeah. the, the cancel culture is isolation. It's yeah. punishing you. I mean, that, and that's where, that's where these shame honor dynamics come in and what you know social media has created is that when legal systems fail when somebody does something bad and we can't punish them through the judiciary means like we would then uh -huh. we punish them through relational means because we can control that and so if i can't get you to jail i will get you isolated mm. i will remove you from society hmm. i will get everyone i will take away everything that matters to you because i can't punish you through the normal methods and so I'll that's punish you so this way. interesting. I mean, that's, that's, that's how shame literally... on our dynamics work. Yeah. And that's how our political system works in the United States yeah. now. Um, now that we have access to, you know, if, if we don't like the policies this person is putting forward, let's catch them in some something that we, in the court of public law, we can we can take them down. Yeah. Um, or, sorry, the court of public opinion. That's, that is, you're making it's a lot shame of connections for me. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. what social media has created is opportunities for shame on our dynamics that we haven't historically had.
Wow. Okay. So now we have these creeping into the United States. We don't really know what to do with them. And if we don't know what to do with them, surely we don't know how to use that as a framework when we are entering into other cultures. So talk a little about that, if you will. So if the result of of sin as shame, which is what this revolves around, and the result of shame is as our bouncing ball of logic, is that shame is what isolates you, whether it's you isolating yourself or others isolating you, both happen. Um, The opposite then is going to be relationship. The opposite is going to be invitation. The opposite is going to be a restoration of value and worth. To an American context, I would call that love. Um, I wouldn't necessarily use that if I was teaching this in another place, but um, the closest thing, because really what it is is honor, but Americans don't know what that word means or how to handle it. So for us, I would say it's love. It's love is based on relationship. Love is an invitation. Love is a is a hospitality into vulnerability that I am going to trust you to enter into my private space and we're gonna live in that private space in intimacy and vulnerability and union. And what that, the chemical reaction that happens in that moment is that we feel worthy of that love. When someone loves us, then we feel worthy of that love. And that is incredibly affirming to our souls. That is incredibly just, it, it brings a satisfaction to all of our insecurities. Uh, because if this person really genuinely does love me, then maybe I am worthy of love. Um, and that's so why we so search for it for so much. That's why we want to be loved and why we search for love and why we have dating apps and everything. Because it's really not, it's oftentimes, we're going to be honest, it's not so much the dynamics of the relationship. It's not, I want someone to talk to. It's, I want someone to answer the question, am I worthy of love? Uh, and if someone says yes to that, then it must be that I really am. And that's kind of the drive and the motivation. And so this gospel is saying, you know, the thing we learned when we were three years old, the gospel is saying, Jesus loves you. Like God deeply desires union with you. God invites you to this connection with him um, because of what he accomplishes through you, because of what Christ does for you, because of how Christ restores your value and your honor and your worth as a human being. Um, And that is incredibly good news. Well, and it's a perfect version. It's a perfect version of love or of, you know, honor, but of love, you know, to, yes. to see and to be loved by someone who isn't going to run out of their love for you and who is not going to um, use love to, to coerce or extort, um, but to, to really be there in a, in a perfect form. It's, that's powerful. And it's, it, I mean, the, the, implications of this thing are just fascinating like um you know the the shame honor worldview is the primary worldview of, of biblical authors especially new testament authors they were they are deeply into shame honor dynamics jesus himself was deeply into shame honor dynamics and so they communicate these things all throughout scripture and we as a not shame honor dynamic society we miss it like we just misread things we misunderstand them we, we, we just gloss over stuff and we we contextualize it ourselves sometimes for good and sometimes for worse and to me like one of the primary examples of this is the what we call the parable of the prodigal son uh, which in itself is a, is a terrible name for that story uh, because, you know, Luke 15, Jesus himself just starts the story out by saying there was a father who had two sons. So if you're going to name the thing, let Jesus name it, which was the story of the father and his two sons. Like let, let the, let the author, you know, like we talked about last time, let the creator define the creation. Um, and that story is, is fascinating example of shame, honor, relational love dynamics, because um, there was a reason for the story. You know, you go back to the beginning of Luke 15. It's this Jesus is teaching to an audience where there's sinners and there's Pharisees. 
there's the good guys and the bad guys, uh, two audiences, you know, two sons, that makes sense. Uh, and the reason for the story, the catalytic event here is that the Pharisees are grumbling and complaining about the fact that Jesus is spending all his time with these sinners. And it is that moment, it is that reaction that causes Jesus to tell first the story of the, of the lost sheep and then the story of the lost coin, which again are poorly named. It should be the story of the good shepherd and the story of the good woman, uh, because the focus is not the lost thing. The focus is the one who pursues the lost thing. But anyway, and then we get to the story of the father and his two sons. And um, the older brother is really the intended audience of that story, because it was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus is speaking to. And so he tells these three stories of a central character pursuing lost things to talk about the nature of the heart of God. And then finally, at the end of the third story, he gets to the older brother. He gets to the Pharisees and tax collectors. And he, he just, he paints the scene in such an incredibly heartbreaking way where you have this older brother who has been working his whole life to receive his father's honor. That he's doing everything right and he's laboring out in the fields and he's following the rules and he's doing everything that he gets to receive the father's honor. And then when he feels like he doesn't get it, he loses his mind and he goes to the father and he's saying like, I did everything right. I never got a party. I never got a robe. I never got a ring. I never got all this stuff. And then the father's response is this, to me, it's like the most heartbreaking sentence in all scripture where he says, everything I have is yours. In other words, like what you've been searching for your whole life and what you've been striving for and trying to achieve, you already possess. Like you've been killing yourself to get what you already have. And like, you know, we take that to us in our lives. And it's like my whole life has been around ministry people. My whole life has been around, you know, I started in ministry and then went into education and now I'm in Christian and academics. And it's like, I'm surrounded by achievers. I always have my whole life. You know, people who are going to do great things for God and people who are going to go travel to these foreign lands and people who are going to, you know, a lot of what this podcast has been previously, white savior complex and all these kind of things of people who want to achieve and do great work for God. And I think sometimes we don't ask the question, why? Like, what are you trying to accomplish here? What are you trying to do? And so many times it's, I want to be worthy of God's love. I want to be able to achieve this magical space where God loves me correctly where God where I'm I'm worth the love that God is giving me and it's the same it's the same statement to that older brother it's like you already have that you already are completely and totally loved why are you trying to fill a hole and a need that has already been met the love of God is this rushing river that you're already swimming in but you can't see it and you don't know it just like the older brother this heartbreaking moment of like you already have it you just didn't know and you didn't see it you didn't experience it and how much would we approach the world differently satisfied in god's love content in god's love knowing that we don't have to do anything to pay. um that's what mm -hmm. this gospel is all about it makes so much sense in this conversation why and i will i'm going to use the word missionaries because for those who are listening to this podcast and and attach themselves to that word or that title or that vocation so many of people like you and like me who moved abroad, hoping to be able to share our faith with others, feel like the 
the way that we are going to be accepted and loved by God is to perfect Matthew 28, be the carriers of the great commission. And that will be the ultimate, that will be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate thing we can do for God. And we get to the field and we crash and we realize we've been striving, we've been doing rather than being, and, and we don't know how to, we don't know how to not attach our achievements or our, or our work for God with our salvation. I, last week in, um, in our house church here, we were looking at Matthew nine and at the end of the, at the end of this passage where, um, Jesus is really inviting people into a community with tax collectors, with yeah. the people that society calls sinners. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that stuck out to me so much because I thought, why have we put the great commission at, you know, this just, that is the ultimate, that's the ultimate command. And here we have Jesus saying, go in a different way, go and learn what this means, practice it out. Um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I, it feels, it feels like it connects here to the honor and shame yeah. framework. A person who embraces the identity of honor, you know, in our context, embraces the identity of love is going to have an internal peace is going to have an internal confidence is going to, because their needs are already met. You approach the world differently when your needs are already met. You know, we talk about this and justice and development issues, but yeah, it's like when, the, when your primary needs are, are satisfied, you go about things totally differently. You don't, you're not driven by this desire to strive and you're not driven by your ambitions and your insecurities and you're not trying to fix everything because it's like, you know that you have what you need. And you can approach others with mercy and you can approach others with kindness. And it's not, you know, you know, I don't withhold those things from you because I'm in competition that you're going to get what I want. It's um, I can be generous and I can be loving. It's, you know, it's those who have received love who give love. It's as simple as that. Um, and how I have had to learn both in myself and with those I interact with is that those who are unloving and are unkind and are ungraceful, especially within the church, that this is their pain point, is their inability to give love is because they, those are their inability to receive it. Um, their inability to give grace is based on their inability to receive it. And so to have that level of compassion for them, that there is a deep pain point here where, um, there's something in their life and in their soul that's blocking the love of God. It's not that the love of God is not there. It's not that it's not searching them and pursuing them. It's that there's something in the way. And um, that's a terrible place to be. Uh, and so we have love and grace and compassion for them in that terrible place. I think that really helps to really attach a, a tangible way forward with all of this knowledge, all of these, you know, just an understanding of these different pathways to the gospel is when we bump up against someone that is rubbing us in the wrong way, yeah. or when we are seeing someone who is clearly distraught or in a situation in life where they feel, um, they feel completely destitute and things are, you know, there's no hope surrounding them. I mean, how, how do you know, which, framework to approach, oh. you know, their story, you know, like how, 
how do you know which story to lead with or which yeah. which facet or or characteristic of, of the gospel to share? Um, obviously, I'm not saying go out and share that first, um, but but how do you even know what frame to use? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just this whole conversation of just knowing what's available to you. That knowing what this, you know, what is sin and what is repentance, what is salvation is that you have options and you have uh, some choices here to make. Just knowing that is, is the first step. Um, and then how to do it and when and why. I think there's two levels of this. We can look at it at like a, a national level, a cultural value systems, anthropology of like, yeah, we, we know enough and we've studied enough to know that certain parts of the world have certain emphasis. Um, and so, there, you know, there's some basic study there that's helpful. Um, so, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to East Asia, I know that I'm going to work in a deeply shame on our culture. And so, you know, I'm going to keep that gospel forefront in my mind as I engage and interact with others. But at the same time, these things are not simple. These are not nice, nice neat boxes that people fit in. And it's all a stew of these things mixed together. And so um, it's kind of like, you know, an uh, ingredients list in a recipe. You know, you take a you go to the store and buy a box of cookies. They tell you on the back, like, what are the ingredients priorities? Uh, you know, buy a box of cookies is going to be sugars, number one. Sugar is the biggest thing that's going to make that what it is. Um, and people are the same way that we all deal with uh, guilt. We all deal with feeling dirty. We all feel defeated. We all feel ashamed, uh, but in different amounts and in different recipes and in different ingredients. And so it's kind of really what it is when we deal with individual people is it's just learning to listen well. It's learning to ask good questions. It's ultimately what we want them to do is to tell their story. And as they tell their story and unpack their soul, we're going to listen for clues. We're going to listen for words of guilt. We're going to listen for words of shame. We're going to listen for words of feeling defeated, of feeling dirty. When they talk about, you know, I'm a rotten, gross, disgusting mess. Oh, those are dirty words. Or, you know, I've done these terrible, terrible things. Those are guilt words. Or I feel so alone. I feel like no one sees me. Those are shame words. Um, you know, we listen for these things. In their telling their story, what is their bad news? How do they describe bad news? How do they understand bad news? And again, it's not going to be one singular way, but we listen for the primary ones. What's the biggest ingredient in their recipe? Um, and then we give the good news that matches their bad news. It's as simple as that as in the bad news of their story, of their understanding of the problems of themselves in the world, um, give the bad news that fits. And you're gonna use all four. You're not, you're not gonna just pick one. You're gonna have a primary one. You're gonna have a, you know, a, a, you're gonna prioritize these things. But again, because we need to understand the identity that the gospel gives us, you need to understand that you are um, forgiven. You need to understand that you're cleansed. You need to understand that you're empowered. You need to understand that you're loved because pulling all four of those things together is a uniquely powerful identity um, that is holistic and balanced. Hmm. Well, that is going to require some actual relationships, Aaron. And I don't yeah. want to do that. I just want to <laughs> hand out tracks to people and let them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, it's just a, it's just an American thing. We want impersonal solutions to personal problems. Hmm. Uh, that's our that's our that's our Achilles heel, and it always has been. You know, train derailment in Ohio. Let's hashtag ten dollars. That's what we want to do. 
we don't mm -hmm. want to go there well for good reasons but for in that case but we don't want to we don't want to go and deal with people we want to solve it from a distance we want to lob solutions over the fence um so we we believe that uh, evangelism is no different it's why we spend lots and lots of money on super bowl ads because we want an impersonal solution to a personal problem we don't actually get involved in people's lives we want to just you know pretend we are and so um evangelism is a personal thing and whether we're talking about you know what we've seen in the testimonies of people's lives or we look at it on an anthropological conversion theory level what they both say is that transformation happens in community and transformation happens through relationship and if we want to share our faith we have to be with people and we have to get to know them and we have to spend time with them and we have to invest with them and in the midst of that they're going to tell their story everybody does eventually everybody wants to we just have to know that it's safe to and when they realize that this is safe and that trust has been built which depending on the person can take any way anywhere from three minutes to you know, 30 weeks in that time, uh, they're going to tell their story and we're going to listen for their, how they describe bad news. What does bad news look like to them? And then we're going to give the good news that fits. I, I have a phrase that I've been, that's been bouncing around in my head um, the last few weeks. And it's really based off of the conversations that we've been having. Um, I'm a big fan of the trickle up economy concept where, you know, the economy will be changed by um, putting money into the people's hands, not by fixing systemic issues from the top down. And I feel like the gospel is the same way. What would a trickle up gospel look like if we invested one-to-one to hear those stories, to sit with our neighbors, to not try and have these mass conversions where we're baptizing hundreds of people in a yeah. revival, but we're sitting one-to-one -one and really discovering what God looks like in the life of that person. And, and if I may, I think that this is, you know, when we, when we talk about making statements about different particular sins, if we're going to make a statement about homosexuality, or we're going to make a statement about um, adultery, <laughs> those top-down statements that that we feel we are required to respond with from a biblical framework, they miss people because they aren't, they aren't connected to story, to worldview, to experiences. Um, that that God has the power to uniquely inject himself into yeah. and and bring real clarity to different different good news <laughs> frameworks for people. Yeah, I think it um, I think it's rooted in how we define success. I think that's a that's a deeply powerful thing. You know, whether talking about churches or we're talking about organizations or we're talking about missions boards or you know, educational institutions, how we define success determines everything else. What does success mean to us? What would it look like? And I think in the topic of evangelism, for far too long, success has looked like big numbers. It's looked like, you know, revival meetings. It's looked like crusades. It's looked like, um, you know, X number of people prayed a prayer or got baptized or filled out a, filled out a form. And um, it's not going to look like that. It's not going to be noticed. It's not going to be celebrated. It's not going to be sexy. It's going to be things that no one hears about. Just the love of people with their neighbor, with showing love and kindness and compassion in a Christ-like way to those who 
feel that they aren't worthy of it or couldn't otherwise receive it. You know, it's, we talk in the church all the time about, you know, Jesus was truth and love. And that's true, but not at the same time. Like Jesus, when he decided between truth and love, depended on the audience. Um, he was unmistakably loving and tolerant and acceptable of those who thought they were on the outside of God's people. And then he was harsh and truthful and scathing on those who thought they were entitled to God's preference. And it baffles me that 2,000 years later as the church, we do the opposite. That those who are on the inside of God's people, we show love and compassion and kindness and grace to. And those who are outside of God's people, we show scathing critique and condemnation. We literally do the opposite strategy of Christ. Um, and that creates some problems. Well, and that's the whole reason that we're we're having this podcast and having these conversations. This is this will be the last interview for this for the season, and and in the next episode, I'll kind of give a recap of some things that I've learned. But um, the whole purpose and the whole the whole thought behind this particular topic for this season of the podcast was because we are sitting in a place now where we're wondering this thing that we've believed in, this movement that has been in existence for forever, can it? last is it still good is it still something that is going to be transformational and life-changing for people or is it just an institution that has failed is it you know and and i don't know maybe you can maybe you can wrap us up thinking you know with yeah with what to do about that what's what's the way forward the only advice that i would have is to be suffering about the headlines like this isn't the future of the church in this culture and in this place is not gonna be in the headlines. It's not gonna be in the big spaces. It's gonna be in the humble places that nobody's noticing. It's gonna be in a remnant. We're gonna have to figure out what a remnant of the American church is. Like we're gonna, we're gonna have to deal with how to live as the remnant and not as the dominant place. And so um, as we transition, I think there's gonna be an incredible transition of the church over the next 25 years. As the boomer generation dies off, and the dynamics of Christendom drastically changes. Um, we're going to have to deal with humility, and we're going to have to deal with a subversive power, and we're going to have to deal with uh, working from the margins. Um, and that's going to take a incredible, humble, gracious approach to our societies and our places um, from a position of less that we haven't had before. Um, and I think there's going to be a beauty in it, and there's going to be. Um, some real cool things from that, um, you know, where I've worked for a long season of my life, that's where they operate from. And there are some incredible opportunities of working from that place. And there's things that I'm excited about in that, uh, but it's gonna take a lot of grief and it's gonna take a lot of loss and it's gonna take a lot of letting go of things that we have held onto for so long. But that is the journey with Jesus. The journey with Jesus is always learning to let go more, always learning to release more, always learning to surrender more. Um, and I think that's the journey that Jesus is taking the church on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be a good thing. And it sounds like Acts 4. And I don't, and I bet that the people in that first century church sitting together, sharing all that they had, some of those people were less lessening themselves so that others could be lifted up. And I, the biblical approach to justice really does look like that. Some people are being pulled up. Some people are being pulled down, not in a, not in a socialistic 
kind of way, which so many, you know, so, so often gets derailed, but in a, in a truly justice oriented way where I, I empty myself so that you can be filled. And there are ways that I have to do that financially. There are ways that I have to do that emotionally. There are ways that I have to do that, you know, physically, spiritually for others, but it's, it never returns empty. Yeah. It never returns empty. And what happened in, in the first century was that the world really truly was turned upside down by that subversive lifestyle that, um, goodness, it influenced us sitting here today, having this conversation because yeah. of the obedience that so many uh, shared in response to the life of Christ. And it's, it's what we've talked about for two podcasts now is it's rooted in our understanding of the gospel. If you are content and satisfied in the love of God, you can let go of everything else. You're not worried about your finances. You're not worried about your career. You're not worried about your relationships. You're not worried about your Instagram followers. If you're satisfied and content in the love of Christ, you can release everything else. Uh, but you got to start there. Yeah, that's, that's great. So good. Um, well, I am so thankful for your understanding of, of history and scripture in this way, of culture. Um, thankful for what you do at Kindred Exchange for all of us. Um, but before we kind of wrap up this season, Aaron, what is giving you hope? What's, what is, um, what's offering you a place to sit and not be super concerned? Like you said, getting out of the headlines, but what is, what is the thing that's, that's tethering you to hope right now? Um, it's just where I've been able to go, who I've been able to work with, of seeing a dynamic church that operates from a place of weakness. Um, to know that if that's our future and if that's where we're going, we're going to be okay. Like there's just, there's an incredible opportunity from that place, um, from being in the minority, from being, uh, you know, a voice in the wilderness, not a voting block. Um, there's incredible opportunity. There's a purity that happens when that's how we have to operate because we wouldn't do it for the wrong reasons. We wouldn't do it for the wrong motivations because there's nothing to gain. Um, that, I look forward to that. I think it's going to be rough. I think it's going to be hard. I think a lot of us and maybe listeners to this podcast, we're going to have to learn. Our, our, our concept of leadership is going to have to be less, how do we go take the next hill and more, how do we handle like a hospice care worker? How do we give peace in the midst of death? I think that's where we're going to have to shift. How do we handle the grief around us? How do we handle people's worlds falling down because they're not seeing what they thought they would see? I think that's a lot of what leadership is going to become. Um, and I think that's a good thing because that's where the love of Christ enters in. And we say, you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. You have everything that you've been striving for already because of how Christ loves you. Wow. Thank you so much. And everyone, please make sure to head over to wherever you subscribe to your podcasts and follow along with Missio Pop, where Dr. Aaron Wheeler here and our friend, Dr. Matt Cook, Talk about things in popular missiology. It is the latest in the podcast series from the Kindred Exchange Network. Thank you so much for listening in. And we are always eager to hear from you as you process these nuanced topics. Shoot me an email at lauren at kindredexchange.co or find me on Instagram at upwardlydependent. 
Of course, I always welcome your honest reviews on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast, or you can engage with us on our Kindred Exchange Instagram at kindred.exchange. Just do me one favor. As we process and grow together, stay rooted in truth that you know is absolute. And that is the fact that we are finite beings and therefore rely on something much bigger than ourselves. That's what the Upwardly Dependent Life is all about. One million thank yous to our amazing podcast team. Vivian Knox is our podcast manager, Kate Kim, our post-production editor, and Abby Littlefield, our incredible producer. Music written and recorded by Grant and Sarah Goodman and produced by Elijah Hester.